You are Locked On Heat, your daily Miami Heat podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, Heat Nation. I'm David Ramillo, credential reporter and the host of Locked On Heat, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Please make sure to subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Wherever you listen to podcasts to get the latest episodes, the Heat were tired and weary as they limped into Oklahoma City to wrap up their seven-game road trip. But just as they have on several occasions during the road trip, they did catch a break. Oklahoma City was without Al Horford and George Hill, probably their two best veterans. They have Mike Mascala as well, but they're mostly a young team looking to rebuild. They've got a treasure trove of draft picks, but at least for one night, they didn't have those veterans in the front court and back court. And Miami was able to take advantage early on. They started off the game really, really well. In fact, it seemed very reminiscent of the offense that had defined the team for most of last season. They were sharing the ball, moving it well, shooting well from the perimeter. Their first eight field goals were assisted ones. And so they were doing exactly what they had done for so much of last season. Passing the ball, looking for open shooters, cutting the off-ball movement from that team was excellent to start off the game. And then something just happened. I, I I wish I could go back and rewatch it completely and see exactly where the problem was because I don't think Oklahoma City played any better defense. I don't think there was any kind of substitution that led to part of their collapse. They were getting some uneven performances, particularly from Jimmy Butler, who I'll talk about a little bit later on in the show. Duncan Robinson did want getting into early foul trouble, something he is prone to do, but there wasn't anything that stood out egregiously or glaringly. Oklahoma City, conversely, were getting a lot of their scoring from Shea Gilgis-Alexander, able to use his length and athleticism to get to the rim or pull up for jumpers. He wound up leading all scores with 27 points. Either way, the Thunder were able to storm back and wind up taking a nine-point lead going through the third quarter. Midway through the period, however, the Heat just kind of figured it out, went on a 21-10 run, and they wound up taking a slim lead of their own. And it was clear that the momentum had shifted as they moved into the fourth quarter, a fourth quarter during which Jimmy Butler played exactly zero minutes. And the Heat wound up having an 11-0 run to seal the game. And the Heat pulled away for a 108-94 win. The score doesn't tell the full story. Miami probably should have had a lot bigger of a lead early on. Oklahoma City able to contend with Miami for three periods. But you know what? It's a win. Miami wraps up a seven-game road trip. They go back home to take on the Toronto Raptors on Wednesday. Four and three on a seven-game road trip. To me the Lakers win shifts it completely. Like, yes, you're supposed to beat the Rockets who have lost, I think, eight games in a row now. The Thunder, you're probably supposed to beat them even if they had had Orford and Hill in the lineup. Those were good wins. You know, they're, they're wins. Sacramento, similarly, you're missing Harrison Barnes. And you still have to wind up finding a way to beat them. And, you know, those are easier wins. The Lakers win was the one that kind of shifts everything for Miami. It's it's what gives you a positive sense that they have, if not necessarily turned things around, at least started to figure things out and trend in the right direction. This is a point I made on the Locked on NBA podcast, which you should totally be subscribed to and listening to. I was asked by my former Locked on Heat co-host, Wes Goldberg, whether or not the Heat have turned it around, and I don't think they have. They won three straight. Before that, they lost three straight. They've been uneven. They won the four games before that against the Rockets, the Wizards, and the Knicks. Not exactly the toughest of competition, but you're trending in the right direction. As Spolstra loves to say, as long as you're building good habits, you're getting to the right place. And I think this is essential for Miami at this point in the season. Miss, missing Goran Dragic, missing Avery Bradley, still trying to figure your way out after 
Jimmy's long absence, etc. I think you're trending in the right direction. You're getting great performances defensively. You're getting great offensive performances from Kendrick Nunn and Duncan is starting to figure it out to some extent. So things are rounding into form. This is a much, I think, better team than they were even a week or two ago. And the losses on the road trip, with the exception of the Utah Jazz, where they had that third quarter, I don't know what you will call it. You know, they were stuck in molasses for most of that period and wound up getting blown out by the Jazz. But other than that, you lost a big lead to the Warriors. They wound up taking it to you in overtime. Similarly with the Clippers, who were missing four starters. Yeah, it doesn't look great. doesn't feel great to lose to those teams. But there were winnable games. And I think you come away with some positivity of the seven-game road trip, which is still a seven-game road trip. Nobody expected this team to go seven and zero during that stretch, and it's something they could have gone. They could have gone six and one. What would we be talking about Miami if they were six and one during that stretch? And and I think the next few games, you've got a four-game stand at home, are pretty winnable. You're taking on the Utah Jazz on Friday. That's going to be a key matchup. Again, you have the Raptors coming in on Wednesday. The Hawks play a two-game series after that. These are great games, a good opportunity for Miami to show how far along they've made improvements, especially as you're building towards the all-star break and also towards the trade deadline, which is always an essential part of any kind of Miami Heat fan discussion. Duncan Robinson was a leading scorer on uh, Monday night, but it was Kendrick Nunn that was the team's best player. And I do want to talk about Nunn in the next segment because I think his play of late has been phenomenal and deserves some attention. Jimmy Butler's struggles, however were a concern for me. He wound up being just 3 of 11 from the floor, 9 of 9 from the free throw line. That's the big part of his game. In the third quarter, that was what was necessary from him. He saw, look, I can't finish. And I don't know what it was. There was, If you go back and watch that game, my recollection of it now is that it just there were shots that were absolutely makeable. They just weren't dropping for this Heat team. I can't explain it. They were great jumpers, good open looks. Jimmy was getting to the rim. Somehow they just weren't falling. I can't explain it. 3 of 11 overall from his night. 9 of 9, however, from the line. And and in the third quarter, that was a big part of what was making such a big difference to help Miami build that 21 to 10 run is that he was just forcing Oklahoma City you know, into foul trouble. He would get to the line, slow the pace getting down so that it would you know, play more to Miami's strengths. It's always great to have a superstar level player like Jimmy who can make things so easy for you when your offense isn't exactly clicking. Eventually it did. Duncan's 22 points, a lot of those came late in the game when it seemed like the momentum had already shifted. Oklahoma City's defense was uh, on their heels a little bit. They couldn't quite catch up to him. He was getting pretty wide open looks and he was able to knock those down. He looked a little fluid, I'll be honest with you. there was one shot along the left baseline there where he didn't even have his feet set. He wound up just pulling up and, and nailing the shot. A thing of beauty. Maybe. I saw some people kind of uh, tweeting that Max Struess was having a solid game. And so that might have kind of uh, lit a fire under Duncan Robinson. I wonder if there's any feeling of competition there. Or at least from D- Duncan, maybe a sense of urgency to prove himself and not get replaced by Max Struess. Although I don't think they're really interchangeable players there. Uh, Bam Adebayo wound up having a really solid game as well, of course. Uh, you come to expect it from him. 19 points, 13 rebounds, 5 assists, you know, kind of triple-double watch there. Uh, wound up having a block as well. 7 of 10 from the field, 5 of 6 from the line. Really great showing from him. Uh, you know, we're a day away from the All-Star Reserve selections. I personally hope neither player gets in there. I know a lot of you will probably shake your head and wonder why, but I think the rest is much more important at this point. I think the fact not getting selected will light a fire under them is also a big factor. Jimmy's gone there enough. 
Bam has plenty of opportunity to go there in the future. Right now, for this all-star ridiculousness that's taking place in Atlanta, I would hope that neither their neither player gets selected. I, I understand the recognition is huge, even though it shouldn't be, because so much of it is the fan vote, so much of it is just whether or not you're you're putting up good points. You know, the criteria for selection seems to change from year to year. Bam is deserving. I also think Julius Randle is deserving. DeMontis Sabonis is deserving. And they're probably Bam's toughest competition as frontcourt players. Uh, I'll get to Max Struess' 11 points later on because I think he also showed some flashes on the other side of the ball. And I know a lot of you had questions about that, which I want to get into. But I also wanted to touch on, before wrapping up this segment, George Hill and Al Horford who are both on Oklahoma City's roster, along with Trevor Ariza. These are guys that are probably going to wind up getting moved. I don't know about Horford. There's no incentive on the Thunder's part to move Horford, who still has a couple years left on his deal. George Hill has, I I think he has the most value as a player right now because he is, well, he's a solid defender. Not great at this point in his career. Really solid shooter. I think you kind of tend to overlook that. He's, I think, close to a career 40% shooter, shooting about 39% this season on 4.1 attempts. So there's there's definitely some range there. He brings some you know, defensive tenacity, veteran presence, uh, a good voice in the locker room. He's a guy who has a – I think he would fit perfectly into Miami. You could slide him in right away and never have any issues. I think he would kind of spur – uh, Goran Dragic on. If, if Goran winds up starting the playoffs as he did last season, having George come off the, the bench would be a great thing for Miami to have another facilitator, defender, etc. Uh, you, you know, especially if you're not sure what's going to happen with Avery Bradley down the end of the road. The thing about Hill is that he has two years left, including this season and the next, but he, there is a partial guarantee on next season. If he winds up getting waived or, you know, yeah, if he winds up getting waived before June 1st of next year or July 1st of next year, the Heat only have to take a $1.27 million cap hit. So, uh, June 30th, excuse me. So, if he gets cut before the start of July uh, this year, rather, then he, he winds up only being a $1.27 million cap hit. Not great. You don't want that necessarily. That ties up some money. But if you've got, if you don't want to necessarily pay him the $10 million that he's owed for the all of next season, then you can save yourself $8.8 million roughly. Uh, it's not a bad idea. Horford fits alongside Bam in that he's a stretch big who can rebound. He can make plays. He's a good passer. Look, Philadelphia was a bad year for him. I still think he's closer to the Boston version of the player that he is uh, today. I, I see the potential there, just the money. It's not quite Blake Griffin, but it's pretty bad. And I, I don't want to pay that kind of money for a player. Of, or I always wanted Horford on Miami. When it came down to him or Hassan Whiteside a few years ago, I was hoping Miami would pivot and get a guy like Horford who just seemed to make much more sense because he could shoot the ball, because he could pass. He could do all the things Hassan could not do. Unfortunately, Miami wound up paying Hassan Whiteside a lot of money, but not as much as the Philadelphia 76ers wound up paying Al Horford. So that's a whole other story. Trevor Ariza is a guy that I think – a lot of Heat fans might be interested in. He's just, you know, like Andre Iguodala the past season hasn't played at all. And I think there have been some issues off the court that have kept him from playing. He said he wanted to spend more time, I I believe, and and I apologize, I don't want to necessarily share too much of a personal nature for a player. I believe there are uh, marital issues and a custody battle, something along those lines. So it's not like he's dealing with any kind of let's say drug or rehab issue or anything like that. He just he wanted time away from the court. He asked Oklahoma City if he could take some time away. 
They granted it to him. He wasn't a part of their long-term plans. I think this is the last year of his deal either also. So he could get traded for a second-round pick that will never convey or something along those lines. And he's a switchable big, a guy who can guard three through five. I think he can stretch the floor. He didn't look great in, I think, his last stint in Portland, if I recall correctly. He's been moved so much between Houston and Portland and now Oklahoma City. It's just – why not Miami? He, he seems like a player that has been perpetually linked to the Heat at some point. He's another one of those stretch guys there. He has championship experience. He's been to the playoffs before. I like the fit. I think both he and Hill would be a great addition to this team. If you're looking to shore up the forward and guard spots, respectively, I, I think you could add Ariza and Hill, and they would make a really nice addition to this team. But Kendrick Nunn Looks really, really good, but I don't think Heat fans are quite sure what to make of them. I'll talk about that next on the number one Miami Heat podcast for the latest news, rumors, and analysis. It's impossible to stock all the parts you might need in a traditional chain storefront. Why endure pointless or intimidating questioning while the person behind the counter orders the parts that you're looking for on their computer, choosing only the brand that they happen to carry in their warehouses? You've got computers with access to rockauto.com at home and in your pocket on your phone. Rockauto.com is a family-owned business. They've been serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. You can choose from hundreds of manufacturers on their easy-to-use site, and you'll get everything you need with just a few easy clicks delivered directly and safely to your door. Why spend more for the exact same parts at a chain store? RockAuto.com's low prices are the same for everybody. So go to RockAuto.com right now, see all the parts available for your car or truck, then go to the How Did You Hear About Us section and enter Locked On so they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car or truck will ever need. That's RockAuto.com. More of the sports news you need in less time with our new Locked On Today podcast. Peter Bukowski hosts Locked On Today, a daily podcast breaking down the biggest stories with analysis from our local experts. Start your day with all the sports news you need in under 20 minutes. Subscribe to Locked On Today wherever you get podcasts. Kendrick Nunn. That's the story, right? Whoever thought, who would have thought that we would be talking about Kendrick Nunn at this point of season because he did not look great at the start. Certainly didn't look great for most of last season despite his hot start unexpectedly hot start and now we're at a point where he's been the answer to so much of Miami's problems at least on the offensive end but he's also doing things off the ball as well he's he's making plays for others he finished with nine assists it has to be a career high for him against the Oklahoma City Thunder and that's making plays for a lot of others that's kicking the ball a big part of Eric Spolstra's drive and kick offense he looked great. He looked comfortable. He looks engaged. He's weathered the storm. And I have to say, it's it's been a joy watching him thrive on the court again. And, you know, there's so many questions now about Miami and what they do during the trade deadline and everything else. And I think from Heat fan perspective, you're looking at whether or not this is a good sign. Does this increase his trade value? There are a lot of questions here. And, you know, I, I answer a few of them right here. Because Max Marshall, he writes in, almost everyone sees Kendrick Nunn as a trade chip, but am I crazy to think that we need to keep him for the time being? He's been huge for Miami on this trip at times. All good points. And I happen to agree with Max here, is that I think that his value contractually isn't that great. So you're not gonna be you're not gonna be getting much in return for an even swap. If he's part of a bigger deal where you're throwing in, I don't know, Andre Iguodala and his contract in exchange for a guy like Kendrick Nunn, 
that might make some sense. But an even even swap there, as far as money is concerned, you're not getting much in return for what Kendrick has been able to provide. And to Max's point, he has been really good. He's been Miami's best player, I think, during the West Coast road trip. Now, you look at Jimmy's numbers and the three consecutive triple-doubles, sure. Those are all really great stats there. And I think you'd have to do a real deep dive as to whether or not each player, you know, what they their worth was during this past seven-game road trip or whatever. But I think Nunn's value is the stabilizing force when Miami's offense so often gets bogged down. When you're, you're, you know, when Jimmy isn't scoring, when Bam isn't necessarily being aggressive on the ball, you've got Kendrick who is a score first player and he looks good doing that. I mean, that's his role. That's where he's best suited, but he's also making plays for others. And so you, he kind of takes some of the pressure off of Jimmy. You have to guard another guy now offensively in that starting unit. If you're, Focusing all of your attention on Duncan, and I think there's a part of the synergy as well, is that you know when you, if you're looking at Kendrick, Kendrick all of a sudden getting these wide open looks because Duncan is getting so much pressure defensively, that makes it easier. Conversely, if you shift over onto Kendrick, if he gets hot, then you gotta you know compensate that, and, and that leaves Duncan open. That leaves that drive and kick opportunity for Kendrick with his speed and ball handling. He's able to get past that initial point of attack. He uses the screen so well in order to get into the paint and then wind up taking a floater. He he just he looks really comfortable in that role as an offensive player, and I I agree with Max here that Miami should probably keep him. You know, Goran Goran is going to return to the bench once he comes back from injury. Now you keep that starting rotation intact because he plays so well with Jimmy Butler. He understands it, and when the playoffs roll around, who knows what you do then? I mean, you can't bench Duncan Robinson. I don't know. It depends. So, like the decision to bench Kendrick was so much more easy last season when he was already struggling and had to deal with COVID as well before the Orlando bubble, uh, you know, resumed play. And so I, I don't know if the if the playoffs began today, I still think Goran would come off the bench as effective as he was as a starter last year. I think you could still rely on him to be a closing player, a closer even though he doesn't start anymore. Now, TZA Mac writes in, none has been balling lately. Should the team sell high to improve the roster for a playoff run? Or can this be an indication to secure him as part of the core? That's the flip side of this, right? Is Again, he his trade value, little as it might be, has improved. Do you sell high now when he looks like he's a great scorer, he's come back into form? I don't think so. I don't. I don't again. I don't know that other teams are looking at none and saying you, you've got a couple months at the start of last year. You've got a long stretch where he was mostly ineffective. You got the first month of the season, maybe month and a half, where he looked really bad, and then a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks, where he's looked really, really good. Someone inconsistent even during that stretch. Is it? Do you evaluate a player like none and say, yeah, I'm willing to give up X player or X, you know? second round pick for a guy like Kendrick Nunn? I, I don't think so. I don't know that you're going to get much in return. I don't know that Miami is also going to want to look at him as part of their core moving forward. And then this question comes in from Baby Goat Burner, who asks, with Nunn's current performance, do you think this becomes another Tyler Johnson debacle where we get too attached and overpay? Now, Baby Goat, you're probably a new listener here because if you know my feelings on Tyler Johnson, I don't think it was a debacle. I think it was unfortunate. He was always a good player, that he was maximized in Miami because of Eric Spolstra, because of a generally mediocre roster. Good points. 
but I think he was mostly solid in his contributing role as a playmaker, certainly as a shooter and potential scorer, and even as a defender. Like There were issues there because he was somewhat undersized, but he always gave great effort at the very least, and I think he was good as a team defender, if nothing else. Maybe not necessarily individually because, again, you were giving up a lot of uh, you know drives to the basket at the point of attack, but you had Hassan Whiteside to, in theory, clean up most of those messes. So, But I the, the contract, which is unfortunate that Tyler is always going to be associated with that deal, that's also... You have to remember when that contract was awarded. You know, first of all, Brooklyn offered him the fifty million dollar offer sheet, which, as a restricted free agent, he could have just as easily signed there. But Miami had to match it, or felt pressured to match it, because they had just lost Dwayne Wade in free agency in 2016, where he wound up joining the Chicago Bulls. Miami wanted to show, look, we take care of our guys. They had to pivot as far as the external view of this franchise. They were going through so much crap in a two-year span with LeBron James talking shit about this team and moving on, with Chris Bosh going through it publicly where you know his wife was complaining that the Heat front office weren't giving him a chance to play. All wound up paying off. It, you know, Obviously, a lot of those relationships have since been repaired, Dwayne and Chris in particular, maybe even to a lesser extent LeBron James. But for Tyler, you know, that, was, that wasn't his fault. Who among us would turn down $50 million if they offered it to us? So the contract is one thing. Did he deserve to get that much money? Did he have that kind of value? Probably not. He was a solid player. And I don't, I think Miami has since learned their mistakes. I don't think they would overpay for somebody like that. Even when they have some salary cap space next year, they're not going to look at Kendrick and say, oh, he's the guy we want to pay 15 to $20 million to. I mean, you've got Duncan, first of all. I don't know which of those two players they internally value most. I would say probably still Duncan, that a guy like Kendrick could probably be more easily replaced. I'm not sure from whom or by whom, but I think that's the view. Perhaps that's just me personal, uh, my personal perspective on things, but I, I, I don't know that they're going to throw that kind of much that much money on him. I would say I would say the market for him is going to be pretty strange. I just I can't exactly read it because. You know, there aren't a lot of big name free agents. He's not one of them anyway, but, you know, he's been a he is viewed as an athletic scorer, still fairly young with that kind of potential. He can grow into being a, a solid player. Like, I don't, I don't even know what the comp is for him. You know, is a Ben Gordon. Is he a six man type guy? I don't think he's as good a shooter as Tyler, even though he's shooting better from the perimeter that Tyler Hero is. I just don't think he's a natural shooter like that, although he's a very good scorer because you know he does have that athleticism. I don't know. I, I, I'm just thinking about it right now. It's so impossible for me to determine what the value is. I, I think a fair contract would be somewhere in the vicinity of three for 30. That's a lot of money, right? I, I mean, maybe that's an overpay too. Maybe three for 24 would be ideal. You know, save yourself a couple million dollars so you can maybe you know pay another free agent or something along those lines. I, I just I don't know what the market would be like for Kendrick Nunn. You know, given how often we've seen those inconsistencies up close over the last couple of seasons, very very difficult to gauge. But you know what? Uh, he's playing well, and Miami needs his offense, and I think it's helped Jimmy, it's helped Bam, it's helped Duncan. It helps everybody in that starting rotation. So I think he's earned that spot, and let's hope that he keeps it, and let's hope that he keeps it up consistently as far as his scoring output is concerned. But Max Struess has been another player that's certainly shown some things of late. Is he a defensive specialist? I'll talk about that and get to more listener questions in the next segment here on Locked on Heat. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Football might be over, but the NBA, college basketball, and the NHL are in full swing. 
BetOnline even covers awards and TV shows, reality TV, real-time updated odds and props on almost anything you can imagine. BetOnline has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. So head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Don't forget to use the promo code LOCKEDON on BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. February's Black History Month and the Lockdown Podcast Network is honoring the challenges and success of black men and women in sports with a new series called Lockdown Presents More Than the Game. Right now, you can hear Candace Cooper of Lockdown Tar Heels and Erica Ayala of Lockdown Women's Basketball discuss the opportunities and challenges that come with being a black woman in sports. Subscribe to the Lockdown Presents podcast feed on the radio.com app or wherever you get podcasts. Wanted to get to a few of your listener questions before wrapping up today's show. Why do you think Spo is comfortable running Duncan? as the three with two other guards like Gabe and Struess for so many minutes. This question comes in from Patty via Twitter. I have no idea. It doesn't seem like that would be an ideal lineup there. I, I would have to dig into the numbers and see exactly who plays alongside those three. I think it all ties together with the next couple of questions that come in here. Is there is in Spoh's view a balance of shooting defensive ability, ball handling, but it doesn't always feel like those lineups work out so well. Uh, you're missing Jimmy for long stretches of the game, Kendrick's out for whatever reason too, and so you don't have a clear go-to score. You don't have a quality defense out in the perimeter. Those lineups can get exploited. Moreover, I think the point is, look, he's just missing two of his next-level rotation guards in Goran Dragic and Avery Bradley. I don't think Gabe Vincent's going to get a lot of playing time in a week or two when both those players return to the lineup. I don't even know if Max Struess is going to get a lot of playing time once those two return to the lineup. Struess at least presents uh, more of an option from his perimeter shooting, even though that's been really wonky of late. I just don't get it. Uh, I also just don't think that they're going to be part of it moving forward. I think that the rationale is a pretty common one there. They're two G League players that are getting a lot more minutes than they probably quote-unquote deserve. And that's no knock on them. Look, there's an opportunity for them to move on and to become solid NBA players, and I'm hoping that they both do. They've, I have no issues with them on or off the court. They seem like solid players. I think they have potential there. They can put in the work, but you're either good enough or you're not, and I think they have to evaluate themselves that way. And, and I think from Spo's perspective and the coaching staff's perspective, it's like, well, what else do we have? We don't have any other options here. And so either you add a player, you waive them, or you you don't, you know, you, you force Kendrick and Jimmy to play more minutes than they want to. None of those are great options. So you go to Struess, you go to Vincent, and you hope for the best. That's about all it comes down to, I think. Philly Heat writes that Max Struess didn't have a great box score, but he played big minutes, and at the very least, you didn't know he was out there. I guess the perspective then is that uh, at least he didn't make a huge mistake, so he didn't stand out to you. You didn't go, oh, damn, Max is out there. For a two-way guy, that's a positive in big minutes. Thoughts on Struess in the rotation for four to eight minutes a game? Yeah, probably just like the same question before. I think he's not going to get that much playing time. If, if Duncan is hurt and you want another bigger type guard who can stretch the floor, in theory, because unfortunately, again, Struess has been shooting so badly over the last week or so, he kind of fits that mold. He's six foot five. 
He does some things off ball, particularly in the defensive end, that have been positive. He doesn't make plays for others. He doesn't rebound the ball particularly well either. But he tries. He tries. He's active. And again, he's he, he has shown the ability to put the ball down and be somewhat athletic and getting to the rim. So those are positives there. I don't I don't see it I don't see it as a staple of the rotation moving forward. And look, when it comes to players nine through twelve, and Eric Spolstra, those are all over the place. Casey Okpala played against Oklahoma City on Monday night. That's not going to stick around. That's not something that's going to be permanent. The Okpala experiment, I think we can all agree, is over. I don't know what. I don't know what's gone on behind the scenes. I think it's died down somewhat. I think people are just kind of resigned to the fact that Oak Paul is not going to get a lot of playing time. But uh, as far as Struess is concerned, I can't see it. Unless, again, Duncan is getting into foul trouble. Then you take him out. You put in probably Goran Dragic at that point. If Avery Bradley's in foul trouble or hurt, then Struess can get a couple minutes here and there. But he's probably going to be the guy that closes out quarters um, just because you want another long-range shooting option out there. I don't see him getting four to eight minutes pretty consistently, uh, 100% honest with you. Bernie writes in, do you think Struess is Miami's second-best defensive guard after Avery Bradley? And this follow-up question comes in from Hayden Beavis, who sent this uh, via uh, email, actually. He used uh, LockedOnHeat at gmail.com to send this question. David, talk to me about Struess's defense. I love his ability to move laterally and keep his hands straight up. That's these are good points. Like I, I think with Struess, the issue with him is more about positioning. Like he can, it, he can lose his guy on defense. So I, I'd have to go and take a deeper dive into his specific minutes of play and watch for his defense. I'll be honest with you. Mostly, I'm looking at him and his positioning on offense and where he gets the ball and his willingness to put up a lot of shots because he's been very active in that regard, uh, even when those have not been falling. But defensively, he does seem to get a little lost out of place there. He's not quick enough. He he moves well, but he just lacks that kind of quickness. Now, he can move his feet defensively, which is to Hayden and Bernie's point, is that he does kind of stick with you. Once he's got you locked in there, he can stay in front of you. And he's got long enough reach. I could see, I saw him on uh, one of his, his steals from yesterday where he was, I think, guarding Teo Maladon, the uh, 19-year-old from France. And, and he was down in his stance. Maladon tried to get that pass over Struess, kind of threw it a little lazily, and Struess was able to just use his length to intercept the ball. It was it, it seemed like a brainless play from Maladon, and also a really good solid play. So I looked at at some more of his steals. Uh, he only has three steals in the season, not great, but he you know one play where he was fronting Cody Zeller of the Charlotte Hornets. I mean that's that's solid. I, I mean what more can you expect from somebody like that? Uh, against the 76ers, he also had a steal in that one game that they played right after the health and safety protocols had destroyed Miami's roster, and he wound up intercepting a pass there. Good anticipation from him, so I think that's kind of what you're seeing in terms of Max Struess and his ability to play defense. You, you're not going to rely on him. You're not going to count on him getting a defensive stop, but I saw even Eric Spolster went to him for extended minutes last year I want to say it was last week, although it might be a little bit longer, uh, in the fourth quarter of a tight game. Struz got that opportunity there because of his defense. To Hayden's point, sorry, to Bernie's point, yeah, he might actually be Miami's second best guard. Uh, Avery Bradley, you have to, I, I guess, give none some appreciation because he has what Struz is lacking, which is that end-to-end quickness. I mean, his ability to intercept the ball – 
isn't so much about you know placing or staying in the right place and, and just getting his hands up to intercept it whereas Struess uses his length and none does have an incredible uh, long wingspan he's all he's also quick enough to close the gap so much more quickly he can intercept passes he can break those up and initiate a fast break because of his uh you know incredible athleticism so that's that's where Struess is you know not going to be able to ever match up to what none can do i'd say that it's a pretty tight race between none and Struess for the second best guard play, at least offensively. But it just also feels like the bar is so low because Tyler's not particularly good, because Duncan's not particularly good, because Goran's not particularly good. So, you know, Gabe Vincent also gets down in his stance, again, tries to give up effort, but he's oversized, overmatched. You know, it's not, it's not great when it comes to the defense from the backcourt there. Uh, this next question comes in from Josh Van Meter. He sends this one uh, via direct message on Twitter, which is always available to everybody. My DMs are open. Does Tyler's continual various, quote, unquote, minor injuries concern you at all for the longevity of his career here in Miami? No, they don't. I, I don't feel like this is a justice situation where those injuries keep uh, racking up because – you know, just as his shoulder popped, then his hip, then his back, then his back, then his hip. You know, he, he's had a lot of different things over the course of his career. And, you know, that's interesting because I, I my first thought, at first blush, I'm thinking to myself, Tyler's kind of undersized, right? I think that's a pretty you know well-established factor. You'd hope that he'd be able to put on more weight and muscle as he gets older, as he goes through more NBA-type training. He probably doesn't like that sort of approach I, I can't say for certain whether or not he does he, i'm sure he goes through some weight training just because it's pretty standard for all nba players but he probably doesn't gravitate towards that he's not you know, he's not putting on muscle mass the same way other guys do. he's not even jimmy in that sense so i i'd say he'd probably have to do a little bit more of that but the injuries i think also have been more about the weird season the start to uh, an nba career he went through the longest rookie season in nba history he had the shortest turnaround in NBA history between seasons. He wound up having to play a lot of minutes uh, during last year's finals run and as a starter this season as well, all without the benefits of a summer league in a second season. It's just been very, very strange for him uh, as far as the, the long break in between the hiatus and the start of the Orlando bubble. So I think all those things more are important factors to consider. I don't know that he's necessarily, quote-unquote, injury-prone. I, I don't think he is. That's my initial thought. Uh, not quite like Justice, anyway. And it's also early. And look, even players who do wind up accruing injuries early on in his career, they could turn it around. I mean, look, I, I wonder what the discussion would be like if if Michael Jordan had suffered an ankle injury the way he did, uh, uh, you know, early in his career. If people would have already, you know, written him off or, or anything like that. Like he missed a whole season as a second year player. And I think nowadays people would be much more legitimately concerned about his health and stability and whether or not he could put on the weight. It's, it's a different game out there. He's also so young. Like he could probably bounce back from a lot of these injuries. I don't think he's also missed that much time uh, to be honest with you. I, I mean, COVID he's missed time because of health and safety protocols. He had COVID. I wonder if there are going to be any long-term impacts from that. But no, Josh, I, I just I don't get the sense that he's injury prone, and I don't have any concerns right now. I mean, again, it's year two of what would hopefully be a long career. We'll have to continue to monitor it, I suppose. But that my feeling right now is that he is not injury prone, and I don't have any kind of major issues with it. Uh, just a reminder that you can always reach me via email at lockdownheat at gmail.com. I'll be talking to Katie Heindel 
as we preview the Toronto Raptors game soon. So make sure you get a, a you know get a chance to listen to that. And of course, I'll be re- recapping the Raptors game. Hopefully, another win at home after they come back. Although that is has always been a trap game. I, I remember Tony Fiorentino, the great Tony Fiorentino, once saying that that was the hardest game to come back to, even after a road trip. Because at least in the road trip, you're immersed in basketball. You're traveling. It's all about the team. You come back to wives and girlfriends and bills and you know things that are going on in your home and while it's comfortable and great to be back home it also comes with this new uh type of pressures and things of that sort so the first game back is always a difficult one for players to get back into mentally so let's hope it's a victory but in any case i'm david ramil signing off and thanking you as always for your support